Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. I want you to imagine that you're in America, sitting in the great, vast congregation in the Church of the Almighty Dollar in Houston, Texas. And the pastor is about to introduce the greatest preacher that he has ever introduced. And he'd have to give him a big build-up, wouldn't he? Because you've probably paid about $100 to get into the congregation this evening. And so he's going to introduce this great preacher, a man who has changed the history of Christianity, a man who has seen millions of souls saved, through his ministry, a man whom God has used, a mortal man whom God has used in the conversion of Gentile nations, a man of great influence. Ladies and gentlemen, by this stage, of course, over in America, you'd be on your feet whooping and hollering and clapping, wouldn't you? Because the pastor is giving this man a great build-up. And I want to introduce to you this evening our guest this evening, Mr. Saul of Tarsus. And to your surprise, this little man would walk out onto the pulpit. A small man, probably with a bald head and bow legs and a hooked nose. And runny eyes, and eyebrows that meet in the middle, and clothes that look like he's been dragged through a hedge backwards, like he's been given a good hammering or a kicking. And so he has quite a few times. And he stands in the pulpit and he's an absolute nobody. And you look and you think, my goodness, is this what we paid our money to come to hear? Maybe he'll be all right when he preaches. And he starts to speak. And he has a stammer. And he can't get too many words out. Do you know, Paul wrote that whenever he came to preach at Galatia, in the passage that we have read about in Galatians chapter 4, that because of his physical infirmity, wonder what his physical infirmity was. Whatever was his trial in the flesh, they did not despise him or reject him. It wasn't good to look at. In 1 Corinthians, when he was there, he was there, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he was there in much weakness and fear, in much trembling. In 2 Corinthians, the people were complaining because they were expecting great preachers to look like great preachers. And yet he wrote to them, for his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is nothing but contemptible. 
So who was this man? Who was Saul? It's always worthwhile to think about that because quite a lot of the New Testament, through God's unique revelation, quite a lot of the New Testament was written, humanly speaking, by Paul, by the man we know as the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus, of course, was born in Tarsus, a substantial town in the province of Cilicia, the south of what is now modern Turkey. Don't confuse Tarsus with Tarshish, which is a different place altogether. He tells us that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, so they were Jewish folks. How did they come to be living in what we now know as southern Turkey? How did they come to be residents there? We have no idea. We do know that he had been there a good while, for he had gained Roman citizenship, or his family had. They would have been a family fairly well off. They would have been an influential family. They could afford to send the young Saul off to university at Jerusalem. He had a meteoric rise to the heights of Judaism. In that passage that we read in Galatians, it says that he advanced, he progressed in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. He was more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers than others were. At Jerusalem, Saul had studied hard. He'd studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. That's very important. Gamaliel stood in the tradition of a long line of Jewish teachers. His grandfather was another famous Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Hillel. He, Gamaliel, followed his grandparent. He had a lenient interpretation in the application of the law. He was a Pharisee, and from him, Paul would have learned history. He would have learned the Hebrew Scriptures. He would have learned Jewish theology, Old Testament theology. He would have gained the qualifications that allowed him to preach in the synagogues. And those qualifications would have gained him preaching credibility in synagogues right throughout the empire, the Roman Empire. So Gamaliel, through Saul of Tarsus, became unwittingly, an influence in the spread of Christianity. We've talked about his personal appearance. He was be fair to say that Paul was no Adonis. His appearance was far from impressive. And yet when he came to preach at Galatia, they would say that he was not good to look at But he came to them as an angel of God. He came to them as a messenger sent directly from God to address them and to bless them. And in fact, Paul says that they were so in so much in empathy with his weakness and his his appearance that in fact they would, if possible, have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. 
early life, his education, his personal appearance, his intriguing change of name. But he changed his name, didn't he? People do it for all sorts of reasons. Paul, of course, considered himself as the missionary to the Gentiles, just as Peter was the apostle to the Jews, as Paul is the Greek form of the word Saul. Paul and Saul are the same word. And yet he has motives for this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he tells us that although he is free from all men, he says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those that are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, to the Gentiles as without law. He became one of them to that extent that he might win those who are without law to the Gentiles. He took the Gentile form of his name to be able to reach them and us for Christ. Now back to our passage in Acts. Because he's now on the road to Damascus. And using his prominence in Judaism, And using his position on the Sanhedrin council, Paul has gone to his fellow councillors with a plan. He has observed that many of the Christians have fled to Samaria. There was a persecution following the death of Stephen. And Saul was one of the instigators of that persecution. Some of the Christians have escaped. They've fled north. They've gone to Samaria. And now he wants to follow them. Now he wants to make sure that they don't get away. He's going to go as far as Damascus, up in Syria. And up there, there are Jewish synagogues. There's a little Jewish community. We could talk about that sometime. Uh, There was an intriguing Jewish community in Damascus. And they had been uh, writing books similar to the Qumran scrolls, but we'll talk about that some other time. And he was going up to that Jewish community to find out if there were any Christians mingling among them, to have them arrested and to have them punished. And to that end, he's obtained a warrant, a warrant for their arrest, letters from the Sanhedrin, letters of introduction Letters that will identify him to the local Jewish leaders and arrest warrants for the Christians. And he's got his own private police force with him. Most commentators think that when he went up to uh, Damascus, he would have brought his own people. Uh, There were those who travelled with him on the journey. And he was going to arrest people and bring them back to Jerusalem. So he would have to have people to do that. And that would be members of the temple guard. So a brief background to Saul. A very, very brief background indeed. And yet there's another story going on. There's a hidden history of Saul going on underneath the fiery exterior. 
because Saul is resisting something that is, by nature, irresistible. You hear some radio presenters sometimes talking about a backstory, something going on behind the scenes, a set of events that are moving things along, taking place that are not just apparent. Well, it's a backstory, you see, to Saul's life. We can't just look at the outward appearance with this man. There's something happening, and it's happening both in the heavenly realms and in his soul, impacting his heart and his conscience. There's something really interesting going on behind the facade, the outward veneer of deep religious fanaticism and hatred. And it's this. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14 to 15, God has chosen him. It pleased God, verse 15, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. There's something going on in Saul's life. While Saul is busying himself with his ambition to become the best ever practicing Jew in the entire history of the whole world, while he's gaining influence and fame in Judaism, while he's hating and persecuting the church, God is bringing his purpose to pass in Saul's life. He has already been chosen before he was even born. Now, how does that work out? Something else had been happening. He had been watching Stephen while he died. He had witnessed the manner of his death in Acts chapter 7. It says, They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was consenting to his death. What impression did that make? Here's a man, and God has already been calling him. And he has been resisting the call of God. And now he's witnessing before his very eyes a man persecuted to death for absolutely no reason other than telling the truth. A man dying a Christian death. A man dying a Christ-like death. A man willing to forgive those who were lifting the big stones and pelting them down upon him. A martyr, an example, a witness for Christ, a powerful impression on a watching Pharisee. Do you know, death very often has a huge impact upon the living. I wonder how many people have come to Christ and wept their way to the cross because of the witness 
of a dying saint. Hmm? They watched a loved one die, waiting with patience and faith, knowing that that loved one will one day be with the Savior, and knowing that they will never see them again. I wonder how many people's conscience has been shaken by a death. Saul had tried to shake off that sense of conviction and conscience. On the road, when he met the risen Savior, Jesus scolded him for his proud resistance to the Holy Spirit's convicting power. The Lord Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Many people have tried that. And many people have tried to resist the irresistible call of the grace of God upon their lives. I wonder how Saul tried it. Did he try it by this outward hatred of the Christian faith? Maybe it's common. Maybe it's more common than we even think for people who are under deep conviction of sin to assuage the wretched conscience and strive against the Holy Spirit's work by a form of anti-Christian bravado, where they will mock the Savior, where they will rant and rail against the church, where they will rave hysterically about hypocrites, where they will engage in spurious anti-God arguments, where they will go out of their way to blaspheme the name of God and Christ. And it's all a front. It's all putting on a big show because inwardly they are being drawn to the very truth that they are sinners who need the Savior. I wonder, was Paul doing that when he kicked against the pricks? Some people trying to resist the irresistible put on a fervor of religious zeal, don't they? That's another ploy that the devil will give to those convicted of their sins, kicking against the goads, people who will try to deflect their conscience feeding it with a hearty dose of fervor for some false religion, trying to deflect their conscience by feeding it with this idea that they are good people or they are church-going people or they are decent enough people. Maybe Saul tried that. Maybe he tried extra fervor for to keep the law. Maybe he instigated the great tribulation that came after Stephen's death. Maybe he breathed out threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Or maybe he tried to switch off his mind. There's an interesting thing about the road to Damascus. You see, on the way to Damascus, Saul had time to think. 
think, for a change. Up till now, he's been busy, hasn't he? He's been running around in this fervour of religious zeal, this frenzy, trying to find Christians and persecute them. But now he's got a seven-day journey. And he's got it on foot. Oh, an important person like the Ethiopian eunuch, who was extremely wealthy, could travel in a chariot. Or maybe if you were a businessman, you could go on a donkey. But most people just walked. And Saul had his retinue of police officers with him, the temple guard. And they would have been walking. So it's going to take seven days in the heat, the dust, in your bare feet. More or less. Just open sandals. And the good news is that because Saul is a Pharisee, He's not going to be able to talk to those policemen. So he's got no distractions. All he's got is a walk. And time to think. Time to be still and know that there's a God. You see, one of the devil's greatest tricks for people greatest ploys for people who are under conviction of sin is to amuse them with nonsense and to fill their heads with noise. He does it from television sets. He does it with music. He does it with conversation. It's called amusement for a reason. Because to muse is to think. God wants you to think about your salvation. He wants you to think about your eternal destiny. He wants you to consider your days, to number your days, to know that you might know your latter end, for that will be good for you, for it will help you to see that the things in this life that you have are not going to last forever. He wants you to think about your eternal salvation. And the devil doesn't want you to think about that. He wants you not to think at all. So the opposite to musing is amusing. Filling your head with nonsense. Disney Christianity. You know... Well, you believe that everybody goes to heaven. Or you think that heaven is just a nice place. Or God's going to forgive your sins even though you've never trusted Christ. All this stuff that you hear. All the stuff that blocks thought. Stops you from thinking. All those stupid old soap operas that people waste their time watching. The devil uses many things like that. Nothing wrong with amusements in the right place. Nothing wrong with work, taking up your time. That's a strategy of the devil, isn't it? He 
so busy with your work that you can't think about your soul. You'd even be so busy with your church that you'd neglect your soul. But now, Saul has to walk. Plenty of time for contemplation. No amusements, no conversation. The Holy Spirit's convicting work is being done. And all the time, while Saul is persecuting the church, God is gradually working, drawing him to himself for salvation in Christ. Those promptings and movings are referred to here in the authorised version as pricks, in other translations as goads. Saul would have known what these things were. They're used to drive stubborn animals. He would have seen mule cart drivers and men ploughing with oxen, using long sticks with a sharp goad in the end, persuading a stubborn, strong-willed beast to turn. It is that that God is doing with Saul, stubborn, rebellious sinner that he is. And it's what he does with us. Sinners who have no notion in our heads of salvation, who don't want to turn to God's way, who don't want to walk in the ways of the Lord, who are rebellious, wretched sinners, and God in his mercy having chosen us as to be his, to be the inheritors and the recipients of his saving grace, he goads us along the way. And it's hard to kick against the pricks. In fact, the reformers suggested that it was impossible. The confessions talk about the effectual call. Funny enough, I looked on the way in there this evening because I thought there might have been a copy of the Baptist Confession of Faith out there, but somebody has removed it. So I'll have to quote to you from the Savoy Declaration instead, where we read all those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state and sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. What a wonderful doctrine that the Lord in his mercy chooses and effectually calls those who are his. And God does this with all of us. He brings us into his kingdom, all of us who are his, Because we're so deeply sinful and rebellious against God, there's nothing within us that makes us desire him or seek him. We would always turn away from him. 
But like Saul in the background, God in his sovereign grace is directing events in our lives to bring us to the place where we become aware of our sins and trust as Christ as Saviour. And we rarely ever know what's happening until later. When we look back over our lives and we behold with wonder the gracious hand of God leading us savingly to faith in Christ. You know, it does us no harm. Sit and think. And look at your life and say, isn't it wonderful? Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Look at what the Lord has done for me in bringing me to saving faith.